Father, we thank You for the words that have come from the pulpit already. From the worship team as we sang praise to the name of Jesus. The name that has been exalted above every other name. The name that when it is spoken in the, de- in the, in, in the day of the Lord, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. Even the defiant, rebellious tongue will confess because they'll be forced to face the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. The name that has been given by which there is no other name, the only name that affords and offers salvation in its truest sense. Father, we lay this morning's study at Your feet and we ask that You would have Your way in our lives this morning. That Your Spirit that You sent into the world would move in a mighty way in our midst. That those of us who have loved ones who are sick would see Your Spirit move in a mighty way and that they would be healed. That those of us who are suffering in our bodies or those of us who have loved ones who are suffering, those of us who are experiencing grief that has nothing to do with human relationship, Lord, that those people would experience the peace that surpasses human understanding, the peace that only comes from You, a peace that produces joy in the midst of the storm. Father, we turn our attention to You this morning because You are worthy of our attention. We ask for Your blessing as we open the text this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's portion of the text picks up right where we left off last week. Last week we dealt with 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16, right? And so this week we're going to be reading verse 17 through 21. We're reading from the ESV. Peter writes, starting in verse 13, And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear, Throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him our believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Coming off the tales of Peter's exhortation to live a lifestyle of holiness in the preceding passages, verse 13-16, through now Peter hits us with an appeal to live a life of reverence. Some of us are looking and saying, I don't see the term reverence in there, but I see the term fear. We're going to get there. So Peter has hit us with back-to-back, right? Back-to-back instructions that come off the encouragement that we call the Gospel the good news of Christ. A lifestyle of holiness, an appeal to reverence. And all of this is accomplished with the opening statement in verse 17. If, if you call on God as Father. Do we understand that Peter is only communicating to those of us who call on God as Father? If you do not call on God as Father, you might as well close the letter, put it down, and check out. Because these words are not for you. However, 
if you call on God as Father, Peter says, read these words. Meditate on these words. Live these words out. I find it really interesting that Peter has decided to use the term if. It's interesting to me. If? I thought if God called me, I had no option but to respond. But Peter has a different thought process here. Peter says, if you call on God. And if you call on Him specifically as Father. Now Thomas Schreiner notes that the use of this conditional clause is an intentional move on the part of the author. Well, if it's an intentional move, then that means Peter has a goal. So let's ask ourselves, what's Peter's goal? Maybe Peter's attempting to provoke his audience. Do you guys like it when I provoke you? Depends, right? It depends. I've been told that I can be an adversarial communicator. And I'm like, okay, that's just who God made me to be. So I'm not going to put that down, but I am going to try to hone my craft so that I don't come across as overly confrontational when I don't need to be. However, when I need to be confrontational, I will be. Right? We're not weak people. We're meek people. Strength under control. Right? So Thomas Schreiner notes that this conditional clause is an intentional move and that Peter has a goal. Well, I believe that Peter is attempting to provoke his audience here. To provoke his audience to think. Remember last week. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. So Peter has already called us to be prepared to think. And now he's provoking thought. The letter has a flow to it. The question that Peter's provoking in those whom God has called is do I, do we, Peter would say, have they authentically answered the call of God the Father? Now in the mind of Peter, it's true. There can be no doubt that God has already called those to whom he writes. In verse 15 last week, we discovered that Peter believed. He who called you, speaking to the believers, is holy. So the charge was to be holy as God is holy. So Peter believes that those in his original audience have already been called by God. So there's the conditional clause, if you have responded to God, and if you have responded specifically, calling Him your Father. There's no doubt in the mind of Peter that God has already called those. The looming question in the letter is, have I, have you, have we, AC squared, have we responded properly? Because there is a proper response to the Creator and Sustainer of life. There's a proper response when anyone calls on you. Ask any husband or wife. Ask any child. They'll tell you there is a proper way to respond to the loved one who is communicating with you. It would be no different with God the Father. So on a practical level, Peter is asking as children of God, do our lives exemplify obedience and reverence? Have we 
been consecrated and set apart for a God who is holy and species unique. It's as if we can hear Peter asking the early church, saints, are we living lives wholly dedicated to God? And nobody can answer that question for you, but you. Everyone in the room here is capable of being deceived. Everyone in the room here is capable of being mocked. However, God is not capable of either of those things. So as long as you feel like you're putting the mask on and you're playing us, congratulations. Because there is one who knows better than we do. And that is a warning to me as much as it is to anyone in the room. Again, just as Peter's provoking you to think, this morning I will be provoking you to think. Prepare your minds for action, church. Be sober-minded. It's time to think. As we begin to move through the text this morning, we need to remember that the theme of the apostle in this portion of the text is a reverent life lived in the presence of a holy God for all whom have called on Him as Father. Can you guys read this next slide out loud for me, please? Now this is not the first time that Peter has talked to his audience about their exile. Remember, Peter's audience is mostly Gentile. However, because of their choice to choose Christ, they have been cut off from the world that they live in because they no longer participate in the cultural uh, themes of, of their day. And they have taken up a new life. And that comes with a cost, which is why Peter talks to them as exiles. Raise your hand if you feel like following Jesus sometimes puts you in that same circumstances. Every single day. Yeah, I can't imagine having to be in the military as a believer. I was in the military at one point in my life, and I was not a Christian, and I was not nice to people who were. But the seeds that they planted in me when I was in the, in the army, they took root, because here I am today. Now, when we look at verse 17, we see that Peter ascribes two different titles to God in the opening of verse 17. Father and Judge. We do not get to only embrace one of these titles. And you'll never hear from the pulpit here that God is Daddy. We have too much reverence to speak about God that way. I'm not saying that the, the rest of the church is wrong for doing it. I'm just saying here in our church, we will not do that. He is Father and He is Judge. The closest you can get to something that holds tension is Abba. Now He bears both titles well. In fact, he bears them perfectly, which is why we are instructed to live with fear, knowing and understanding that one day we will be responsible to give an account. God will judge impartially. This is no favoritism. And how is God going to judge humanity? Well, Peter says, according to one's deeds. This is why around here we 
stress the fact that you shouldn't presume on some status that you think you have. Because making a presumption on a perceived status leads to pride. And God opposes the proud, Peter says, but He gives grace to the humble. Chapter 5. Now we need to address the difference in our lives between living in fear and living our lives with fear. Because there is a difference. We do not, as children of God, need to live in fear before our Heavenly Father. However, as children of God, we should live with fear before the just judge of both the living and the dead. Because Peter will talk about judgment beginning with the church, and he will talk about the church barely being saved. His words, not mine. Now we are working this morning to address the differences between living lives in fear and with fear before a God who is righteous and holy. Which means that we need to define the term fear as the author intended to use it and as his audience understood it. This begs the question, how did Peter define fear? Well, it's a great question. And it's one that we should be asking when we come across harsh language in the text like this. I thought lots of the Old Testament uh, prophets said, fear not. I thought Jesus said, do not fear specifically those who can kill the body, but fear Him who can destroy both body and soul in the final judgment. So what is it, Matt? Do we live our lives in fear? Or do we not fear? How does Peter define the term fear? Well, this one can be tricky because the lexicon gives us a range of meanings for the Greek word phobos. And phobos is a word that is translated from the Greek into the English in fear, but it's not the only Greek word that's translated from the Greek language into the English language. And if you're looking at the slide right now and you're like, what the heck is page 1062 in BDAG? You're asking another good question. BDAG is the lexicon I use for Greek New Testament manuscripts and early Christian literature. That's my preference. I think it's the gold standard. There are other lexicons out there, and they're, they're helpful, but I think that this one is the gold standard. Now, BDAG is an acronym for the names of the authors and the editors of the book, Bauer, Danker, Ardent, and Gingrich. So that's why we have the term uh, the acronym BDAG, so it just shortens up how you say the name of the lexicon. Now, in BDAG, right? What's that? Rightly so, Rightly so right? Nobody wants to say, in Bauer, Danker, Gingrich, and Ardridge, what? <laughs> it's like a tongue twister. But in the lexicon, they define phobos, the word fear, as the product of an intimidating or an alarming force. How many of us know that there are multiple ways to respond to an intimidating or an alarming force? There's not only one way to respond. And if you look in the text of Scripture, you will see different responses from different individuals at different times based on different experiences. So maybe we need to look at the context of what Peter's saying before we just read into it what we think fear means. 
an intimidating or alarming force. Fear or fright can be one response, while reverence and respect, something that gives birth to honor, can be another. So we're asking ourselves the question this morning, are we to live reverently? Or are we to live in terror? Because both of these words are synonymous with the word fear. One commentator notes that terror, by definition, does not fit with the joy and boldness which are meant to define the Christian life. I agree. Terror. This is not the word that should define the Christian life. Because the Christian life is defined by joy and boldness. However, the idea of reverence on its own, you know, if we just take reverence and put it in isolation, it has the tendency over time to become watered down, to lose its punch. Ask your five-year-old if he has honor or reverence for his father. Then ask your 13-year-old if they have honor or reverence for their father. Then ask your 16-year-old if they have honor or reverence for their father, then wait till that child is 30 and they're looking back over their life and then ask them, do you have honor or reverence for your father? Every response will be different for different reasons. Maybe maturity plays a role in how we should define what Peter is saying. Which means it's going to be a case by case basis. Now, what if I said this morning, it's kind of just going to be a little bit of both and? Sometimes people have an allergic reaction to that. No! I'm black and white, baby. It's got to be one or the other. Yeah. Not when you come to the text of Scripture. What if I said that there is a kind of fear that does not contradict confidence? Would you agree that there is a type of fear that doesn't necessitate contradicting your confidence? Allow me to give an illustration. We're Alaskans in this room, right? It's funny because my parents are visiting and they're from California. In Alaska, we're required to be competent and confident drivers, especially through the winter months. This is just a reality of living life in this state. However, our competency and our level of confidence does not equate to an attitude of fearlessness or recklessness when we drive. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. Our confidence gives birth to a healthy fear of the potential for accidents, things that are unforeseen and outside of our control. And it is that very fear which hinders us from doing anything foolish when operating a motor vehicle for our own good and for the good of all who are on the road. So I believe it's safe to say that there is a certain type of fear that exists that does not necessitate contradicting one's confidence. If it works in the illustration that I just gave you, then chances are that it works in other areas of our life as well. Maybe in our approach to the text, which means that to some degree, we are going to be required to hold these different ideas, 
these different definitions and meaning intention when attempting to read through, think through, and talk through what it is that Peter's writing. Are you guys following me? Okay. Wisdom dictates that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge, right? So Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. Ultimately in this life, the weight of one's understanding of fear will categorically gravitate toward reverence over time. But that's only because over time we grow and mature in our understanding of what it is that God has accomplished in us and through us on Christ's behalf. Right? So it takes time, which means it includes maturity. Peter's reminding us in this portion of the text, church, he's speaking to us, we're going to be assessed by our works. And it's heaven and hell that hang in the balance. This is a very sobering reminder to those of us who call on God as Father. Well, I thought I was saved by faith. You are. And remember, obedience is necessary for faith. We talked about this last week. James would confirm this in his epistle. Faith without works is dead. It's worthless. So a faith that does not work, right Rob? Is not a faith that is going to save you. Obedience is necessary for conversion. If we bear the name of Christ, if we bear the name of Christ, if we call on God as Father, and we bear the name of Christ as His obedient children, then out of honor for God, in connection with a healthy fear of the final judgment, we Christians must decide to live a life that is dominated by devotion. A life dominated by devotion. I wonder, I just got to be honest with you, I wonder if I live a life that is dominated by devotion. Your pastor, your shepherd has got to be honest with you. There are times in my life when I struggle to honestly say my life is dominated by devotion. Are you guys okay with that? Good, because I'm not your Savior. God is. And if you follow me beyond my teaching responsibility, you're going nowhere good in a hurry. I will fail you. I will hurt you. I will let you down because I'm fallible. When I do that, I hope that you respond to me the same way that I respond to you. Every time someone lets me down in this body, I tell myself, they could have done so much worse. Praise God they didn't. Extend grace and mercy and move forward. Praise God. They didn't do it worse. I've seen the church cut people off, hack people, before all of the steps of discipline have been worked out. And it ends up in hurt that goes unhealed for far too long. And we do not want to be guilty of that here.
on a practical level, it means that as obedient children of God, we're required over time. This is the good news of the gospel. We're not required immediately, but we're required over time to conform to the word and the will of God by the spirit of God. And everyone's timeline is different. But God is in control of all of it. So we should rest in that and be okay with where God has each of us individually while we focus on what it is that He's doing in us. Not what it is we wish He was doing in others. Because that right there is sign number one that we have a greater problem than the person we're looking at. If we call on God as Father, we're required over time to conform to the Word and the will of God by the Spirit of God rather than to conform to the ways of the world and its prevailing culture. It's a very practical way of looking at what Peter's saying. You can conform to God and you can be transformed by His Word and His Spirit in accordance with His will or you can conform yourself to the passions of the world and whatever it is that culture is dictating. On this side of the scale, this is a moving target. On this side of the scale, God is consistent, unchanging, and immutable. Like the early church, we have been called to a lifestyle of holiness by a God who Himself is holy. The only proper response to this act, this act of great grace, is reverence. And remember that reverence is synonymous with fear. It's synonymous with fright. It's synonymous with honor. The proper response is reverence. We use that term because if I use fear, our minds get confused by our language's definitions, not Peter's language's definitions. New Testament scholar Daryl Charles writes that a proper biblical response to the biblical perspective on the topic of fear will not disengage or cancel out the subject's love or affection. However, one's understanding of it must proceed from an awe that properly recognizes the Lord as both our Father and the Judge. Let me say that again. Our under, uh, a proper biblical perspective on the topic of fear will not disengage or cancel out God's love or affection for His creation. It won't. Our understanding of God's love and affection for us, His creation, must be informed by a level of awe if we desire to properly understand both God as Father and Judge. Around here, we desire to have a proper understanding of who the Lord is. And to do this, Peter teaches us that we must be able to recognize Him as both Father and Judge. Inseparable. When verse... Uh, oh, actually, I need you guys to read this next slide for me, please.
When verse 18 and 19 are taken together, they form what's generally referred to as the negative-positive perspective. Remember, we talked about this last week for those of you who were here. We talked about the negative-positive perspective, and I asked all the parents in their room if they utilized this strategy when addressing their children. And I think that nobody raised their hand. I could be mistaken in my memory, but Peter's doing it again. We had an example of it last week. We have an example of it this week. The negative-positive perspective. First, the author communicates the negative view. What did not redeem believers? What did not redeem believers? Perishable things. What does he name these perishable things as? Silver and gold. Second, he communicates the positive view by which they, the believers, were actually redeemed. What is the positive view? The precious blood of Christ. As Christians, we need to remember that just as ancient Israel was liberated from their bondage in Egypt, we too have been rescued from the empty ways of life passed down from our ancestors. Peter talks about salvation or redemption or being ransomed in the past, present, and future tense. And here at AC Squared, we are guilty of the very same thing. We say here at AC Squared that we have been delivered, liberated, redeemed, past tense. What have we been redeemed from? We've been redeemed from the penalty and the power of sin. That way we can live a life that is in pursuit of holiness while living a life that is attempting to be reverent in the present while we long for the future tense. What is the future tense? When we will no longer experience the presence of sin and its consequences in this life. So we have been redeemed from the power and the penalty, past tense, to live a life that is set apart in the present as we long for the future where we will be free from sin's presence. The enemy death has been put under God's feet. However, we know that people are still dying. God has conquered death, but we still experience it. We are longing for the day when its presence will no longer affect us. We too have been rescued from the empty ways of life passed down from our forefathers. Now we talked about how controversial this statement would have been Last week, because Peter made basically the same statement. You've got a communalistic culture that's grounded in honor and shame, and you make a statement like this. Your forefathers' ways were futile. <laughs> How do you think Peter's message is going to be accepted? Not good, right? It's a difficult thing to take ourselves sometimes out of the mindset of modernity and put ourselves into the ancient Near East or the first century. But you know what? In America, they're picking up this type of behavior quite rapidly. Where if you disagree with the cultural norms or the standards that culture is dictating, you will be ostracized. So this letter of 1 Peter is probably more relevant in our lives now than ever before. At least for me, it's becoming more and more relevant. As children of God, we long for the day when we will be free of sin's presence. Peter has described this in previous studies as the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
either the apocalypse, the unveiling, or the parousa, his second return. The language that Peter chooses to use in verse 18 and 19 echoes the words of our master who declared that his own mission was to give his life as a ransom for the many. Can you guys read this next slide out loud for me, please? Now, we know that Jesus didn't write anything down in his life that he taught, but we know that his disciples faithfully wrote down things that he taught. This is the gospel according to Mark, and Mark teaches us that Jesus taught this. Jesus' instructions about his own mission came in these words. Now, I don't know about you guys, but do you notice, because I missed it, I was definitely standing on the shoulders of the scholars here. You guys notice the negative, positive perspective in this truth claim? There it is. The negative, positive perspective. Jesus himself states the negative view. And Ethan just said it. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served. That's the negative. Now he gives the positive, but he came to serve. And we have to ask, what does authentic service look like? Well, to Jesus, in accordance with his mission, authentic service required that he give his life as a ransom for the many. Are we called to be like Christ? No greater love than this. Than what? Someone lay down his life for his friend. I love when you guys shout me down like this because it gives me like just an encouragement. It like stirs me up. I was telling Rob this last week. I think I texted you, right? And I was like, just keep shouting me down, dude, because when I'm preaching and people are responding, it makes me, it lets me know that it's not going over their head, you know, or just like falling short, that it's actually landing. And we want these messages to land. And if they're not, tell me so that I can improve because I'm up for learning myself. I want to get better. His earthly mission, right? His earthly mission. Could this be in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the potential foundations for the words of the apostle as he writes to those who are suffering in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia? I mean, Peter was there, present for this. He experienced Jesus' teaching. Jesus was an itinerant preacher. Jesus didn't exegete the text like I do, verse by verse, uh, week by week, and go straight through books. Everywhere he went, he preached the message of the kingdom, and he did it in parables. He had a certain amount of stories, and scholars like N.T. Wright teach us that he probably told these stories hundreds, if not thousands of times, to different groups of people. Jesus was an itinerant preacher. So maybe Peter was present and he heard this and maybe it was this memory that inspired him to write what he's writing in verse 18 and 19. Of all of the motifs, and there are tons of Old Testament motifs that we could unpack in the backdrop of verse 18 and 19 this morning, I want us as a family to set our attention on one thing and one thing only. That's the cost. We could talk about the historical cultural context of what it is that Peter's writing all day long 
because there's so much depth to it. But we would miss the point if we didn't address the cost. Do we consider the cost? Because those who live lives that are devoted, they don't just count the cost. They first consider what it cost. And it didn't cost us anything. No payment was made to anyone. The cost of our liberation required the infinitely precious, highly valued blood of the Messiah. Through Christ, God purchased us for Himself at an enormous cost. A precious cost, according to Peter. And it's this precious cost that demonstrates our preciousness. Think about that, church. You are precious in the sight of God. What a blessing to be counted worthy of redeeming. To know that God set His love on you while you were his enemy. And that he did everything that was required so that you need do nothing but put your confident hope in him and then live your life for him because he has made you able to. This is why we can say Christ alone and stress works because he's already done it all. Therefore, we can do whatever he asks. He has not left us ill-equipped for the mission. Yes. Yes. Fruit. The evidence. The expression of our sincerity. Jesus of Nazareth, our Messiah, is to be recognized as fulfilling the office of prophet, priest, and king. And there is no man in history who has held or fulfilled all three roles. And there will be no other man who will hold or fulfill all three roles. Prophet, priest, and king. His death is to be regarded as both sacrificial and substitutionary. The cost was the precious blood of the sinless lamb, Peter said. And when Peter preached at Pentecost, he teaches us that he willingly laid his life down for the benefit and the release of the sin-bound creature. You and I are sin-bound creatures. Not because of what Adam did, but because every created being is not sustainably perfect. Everybody's going to not come back now because Matt doesn't <laughs> preach federal headship. <laughs> That's a conversation for another day. For those of us who claim to know and understand the message of the Gospel, we must acknowledge in the light of this information and our understanding of it that there is no other option than to live a life of reverence before God as His beloved children. God created us knowing that we would fail. And it didn't bother Him. He didn't need us. And yet He said, no, I'm not only going to create them, I'm going to set my love on them. And if a problem arises, and it will, I'll fix it. That's a good father. 
Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Peter writes that the precious blood of the Lamb was poured out for our sake. Talk about the cost. Don't ever let a preacher tell you that you're not worth redeeming. Just because the psalmist refers to us as a worm doesn't mean that God actually sees us as a worm. We need to know how to interpret the text if we're going to talk about it. And it's important that we come to the text with a level of wisdom that teaches us that God loves us while we're his enemy. The precious blood of the Lamb was poured out and this was no accident. God, he had his strategy in place long before the universe as we know it was called into existence. Before the foundation of the world. Alan Stibbs writes that before the foundation of the world, the person, word, and work of God's Messiah was declared to have had a place in His eternal counsel. A place in God's mind and a purpose. And all of this took place before the created order was ever spoken into existence and its foundations established. By proxy, we've been made aware that man's fall into sin and consequent bondage did not take God by surprise. Yahweh has foreseen it all. And He was ready with the remedy. God knew beforehand what He would do when humanity's need for liberation emerged. And our need for liberation has emerged. Peter's confession of the Christ and his role in salvation history is a remarkable and compelling witness to the love of God which was poured out for those of us who were created in His image. It's a very beautiful thing that the Bible communicates to us when we read it. If you came here this morning looking to hear the good news, that's it. God knew you would be a dirtbag. He didn't need to create you. And He did it anyways. And then when you did everything that you shouldn't do, He made a way so that the relationship that you violated could be restored and reconciled. That's love. That's a love that I not only don't truly know because I, don't, uh, I, I haven't explored it to its depths, but I can't extend that kind of love. That's the perfect agape love of the Father. He, being Christ, Peter said, was made manifest in the last times. And all of it came to pass just as God had planned it. And it was accomplished for our sake. Peter preaches this same message in Acts chapter 2 and 4 as well. Maybe it's chapter 3. The God of the universe is a God of great grace. Great grace. The God of the universe is a God of great mercy. The God of the universe is a God of great love. And all of this is seen most clearly in the person, Jesus, the man from Nazareth, who just so happened to be God's Messiah. Our Redeemer. 
God himself in the flesh. God has gone to the greatest of lengths to redeem us. Amen? Can you guys read this last slide here that's coming up? Verse 21 is descriptive of the very reasons that we, as the bride of Christ, not only can but should put our confident hope in God. Confident hope. Are we confident in the hope that we have? And is our hope in God? Remember, the one command from last week's sermon, set your hope fully on the grace of God that is to be revealed in the final times. In the last days at the revelation of Jesus. Is our hope a confident hope? Peter later in the letter will say that we are to honor God. And the way to honor God is to be ready or to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that lies within. Are we confident about our hope in God? It was through Christ's earthly ministry, glorification and exaltation, that we were able to place our faith in God. That's what Peter says. Who through Him, speaking of Jesus, you are believers in God. We're on this side of the cross, ladies and gentlemen. It's through the finished work of Christ alone that we have been given the chance and the opportunity to respond to the call of God as Father. And it's through Christ You who through Him are believers in God. His earthly ministry involved His resurrection from the dead. We affirm this to be true, right? On the third day, Christ was raised from the dead. Paul would say, in accordance with the Scriptures, what was written of old. I hope that we affirm this. And it was only after Jesus was raised that he was glorified. I was having a conversation with my dad this week. He's like, no, Matt, Jesus was always God, therefore he's always been glorified. And I was like, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that he emptied himself. So what is it? Has he been eternally glorified? Or at one moment did he choose to blunt the force of his glory so that he could be incarnate in the flesh and interact with humanity? And if God sovereignly chose to do it, then so be it. And what was he after he was raised from the dead? Yes, he was glorified because he was given a resurrection body. Again, Paul would call him the firstborn of many brothers. And we long for the resurrection body. This is the glorified state that the Bible talks about. Then what? Then after showing himself to more than 500 witnesses, he ascended and he was what? He was exalted. He was seated at the right hand of the Father. He was not exalted on earth, but he will be. However, he was exalted after ascending when he was seated on the throne. Stephen saw it. it. Paul saw it. Their words are our authority because the Spirit inspired them. So his earthly earthly ministry involved his resurrection and it was only after he was raised that he was glorified. 
Following his glorification, like we just said, he ascended, he was exalted, and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. What's he doing at the right hand of the Father, church? He's advocating for us. That's an interesting way of putting it, but it's true nonetheless. He sent his spirit, the paraclete, the advocate, into the world to advocate for us. Christ is the mediator. There is one man, Paul writes in his pastoral epistle to Timothy, one man who mediates between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. So he is advocating in a sense because he sent his spirit into the world, but he's mediating. And what does the spirit of God do who is no less God than Jesus and no less God than the Father? The spirit intercedes for us. On our behalf, when we lack the words, He intercedes for us. The Spirit prays for us. So God, in Christ and through the Spirit, not only advocates, but He mediates and intercedes. These are beautiful terms for the believer. Because we are not only never alone, but we're never meant to feel alone. Because we always have God present within us. If you came here today looking for a reason to place your faith and hope in God, I can do no more. You've just been made aware of it. That's why Peter says, so that your faith and hope are in God. Through Christ, you've been made capable of believing. God raised Christ from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So you're telling me that because God raised Christ from the dead, I'm supposed to be confident? Yes! Yes! What greater display of power than this? What you've heard today, you can never unhear. And remember that God is a just judge who will judge us by our deeds. You've been given knowledge. You've been explained the knowledge that you've been given, which means you should have a level of understanding, which means that the just judge can now hold you culpable of what it is that you will do with the knowledge you've been given. In Christ, God proved His power to conquer death because God raised Jesus from the dead. We too can be confident that through faith, God will raise us from the dead. He raised Jesus past tense. He will raise us future tense. Live with hope and confidence in the present. We need not live in fear of death. We only stand in awe of the one who overcame it. God glorified Christ with His resurrection body and then He exalted Him. We can be confident that through faith God will glorify us with the resurrection body. And then guess what? The same Father who exalted the Son will exalt us. We've been talking about this church. He is going to crown us in the presence of all. This is a public act of deeming us worthy of praise. And yet in reverence and awe, we are going to take the gift. We're going to take the crown and we're going to lay it back as His feet. And we're going to return all the praise and all the glory and all the honor to the one Father who is the judge of both the living and the dead. He holds both titles perfectly. Our confident hope is in what God not only has done already, but it's grounded in what He's currently doing and what He will accomplish. The kingdom was inaugurated in Christ. 
John the Baptist preached the kingdom is near. Jesus said the kingdom is here. The kingdom has been inaugurated in the life of Christ. One day, at the future revelation, at the unveiling, the kingdom will be consummated. Our goal as children of God is to remain loyal, choosing a life that exemplifies reverence. A life that is wholly dedicated to a holy God. Only then can we stand confident in our future salvation. We can never forget, we can never forget that it wasn't silver and gold. It's not silver and gold that brings us into right relationship with God and our fellow man. We cannot buy this. We cannot do anything to accomplish this because it was not anything that came from this corruptible world that redeemed us. It was God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot, who was ordained before the foundation of the world. And it was He in His life, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation who enables us to experience both faith and hope in the past, present, and future work of God. This is the Gospel. This is the good news. Put your faith in God because there is no other truth that can uh, transcend this truth. So many people today are walking around living in fear. Putin, what are we going to do? My phone rings, text messages go off. I think Jesus is about to return. Right? What are you doing right now? You're worrying. You're being anxious. You're doing the one thing Jesus told you not to do. And that thing that you're doing is distracting you from living the life that he's called you to live. Why are you texting me? I'm going to correct you, bro. I'm going to tell you this is stupid. Plus, I'm an amillennialist, so I'm not a pre-mill rapture guy. So why are you talking to me about the wars being the signs that Jesus is going to return when I'm going to tell you they're just the birth pains? I'm not telling you that you're wrong. I'm just telling you that I don't agree with you, so I'm not going to be the, the type of support that you're searching for. Because when you want comfort, you're going to receive a rebuke. I don't know what to tell you. Sacrifice the truth or speak the truth. i got to speak the truth. That's a 10,000-foot view of people living in fear. There's other people living in fear in this room. Children who are without a home. Wives and husbands who are facing divorce. Girlfriends and boyfriends who are wondering if they should get married. Single people who are wondering if they're ever going to have somebody. Fear dominates most of the things that I just described to you. Because people don't want to stop and say, I have a confident hope in the finished work of Christ. I'm not happy with my circumstances. God changed them, but I will not lack hope. This is the Christian life. That's at a 10-foot view and a 10,000-foot view. Why is the church walking around in fear? I told you I'm here to provoke you today. Wake up, church. We're not supposed to be fearful. We're supposed to live in reverence of the one who will judge. And if we live loyal lives, we have nothing to fear because our faith will be a faith that saves. Amen? We cannot be fearful. We cannot be fearful. 
We cannot give in to the things that are happening. I'll tell you what, the Americans who were living during World War I and World War II were saying the same thing. God must be getting ready to come back. You think this is the first pandemic? Martin Luther would be waving his hands at you and he would be like, no, fumigate, put your mask on because he wore one. And he would say, move toward the plague, not away from it. And that was only 500 years ago. You want to read stories about missionaries experiencing plagues and suffering? Study some church history. Do some missiology and find out that people have been dying for years for the name of Christ. Why are we fearful when we live in a first world country with a doctor on speed dial? I don't get it. Some of us are praying for healing and we believe that we should pray for healing but every good and perfect gift comes from above. You know what a form of healing is that has come from God? Medical science. We have so much of it in this first world country and we wonder, God, why don't you move like you did in the text? He's like, wake up, dummy. I have moved over centuries to bring you guys to a level of comfort that you never thought you would have. There's no way that the world that went before us in the church in its early days could have ever dreamt of how we live. We go to Costco, we go to Fred Meyer, the shelves are never empty. Unless the pandemic hits and people are fist fighting for teepee. But while they're fist fighting, you're just like, thank you, and you walk on. Or you wait for the next shipment to come in. Seriously, church. We have nothing to fear. And I will stand here week after week if need be and provoke you to think, to be preparing your minds for action and to be sober-minded. Not because I think I have to, but because God tells me that I need to. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the sermon that you have uh, prepared in my heart and my mind for this, this morning, God. I pray that these words would land on hungry hearts. I pray that your word would go out in power this morning, God. That we would leave here differently than we walked through the door. That we would know that fear need not dominate our lives. Anxiety need not dominate our lives. We can deal with fear and we can deal with anxiety because you have overcome the world. So let us put our confident hope our faith in You and in You alone. Because You are worthy, God, of all glory, all honor, and all power, and all praise. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, the letter of Revelation teaches us. To Him be all glory. To Him be all power. To Him be all praise. The Lamb who was slain, as we dis discovered today in the study, was Jesus. The one whose blood was poured out for us. And Father, we stand here with hearts that are grateful that You ransomed us from death and from bondage and from slavery and that you transferred us from darkness into light and that you are transforming us because you love us too much to leave us where you found us and that in this life, God, it's never going to end. It's going to be an ongoing process and then you're going to perform an even greater act of grace when you glorify us and exalt us, Lord. We thank you for the good news of your gospel because through it, we can stand fast. So we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.